love that song. And I especially love the energy in that song because we are back in Ecclesiastes today and we're still in the downer parts of Ecclesiastes. So you're going to need some of that energy to make it through, I think, Ecclesiastes. Boys and girls, make sure you have your children's bulletin with you today. You have your own translation in there and a place you can ask questions. And again, please, if you ask Pastor Sean or Pastor John Mark a question and hand this to us, please put your name on there so we know whom to answer. And before we go to God's Word, let's uh, go to Him again in prayer. Now, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to Your Holy Word this morning, we ask that You would feed us richly on Your truth. May we feast ourselves. May we May we imbibe, Lord, on the presentation of your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, open this word up to us. Sanctify us through belief in the truth according to the grace of God. May we once again see Christ crucified and resurrected for our forgiveness and salvation. Amen. All righty, so a couple weeks ago, we started Ecclesiastes. It's the book in the Bible, we said, that asks the questions the rest of Scripture answers. It's the book that admits that sometimes life doesn't make sense. That life is frustrating, that life is unmanageable. And often we ask the question, how in the world is God in control of these things? The book begins with the question right off in verse 3, what does a person gain by striving and working and living? What's the point of it all? And everybody, functionally anyway, the way we live, we may not sit back in our ivory towers, philosophers, and ask why, but the way we live our lives, we try to answer that question of what's the point? The book of Ecclesiastes is an honest look at all the various ways that we try to answer that question, that we try to save ourselves under the sun. We're going to see that term over and over again, under the sun. It's a synonym for what the New Testament calls this world. It's life in a cursed, fallen world that doesn't make sense, that's frustrating. We also, as we started Ecclesiastes a couple weeks ago, we got very candid and honest about how we and the church often aren't comfortable with asking those questions, with admitting that life is frustrating. We saw that Ecclesiastes is the book. In fact, I said if you wanted to, you could put a subtitle under Ecclesiastes, that Ecclesiastes is the things we think but never say. Because somehow we have this idea that it's not godly to ask these ultimate questions. It's not Christian to express your frustrations with life. But Ecclesiastes is honest about the difficulty and frustration in this world. It's honest about how we do not have all the answers. This world creates frustration. The word is vanity that most translations have in Ecclesiastes. It's the idea of vapor, the idea of smoke, the idea of mist. That that as soon as we try to grasp onto life and say, I've got it, I understand, I can manage, I have control, life changes, doesn't it? And we're back to frustration. We're back to anxiety. And the church is not immune to that. So Ecclesiastes is about answering the frustration of life under the sun. So with that in mind, let's go to God's Word today. Today we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. 
This is God's word. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is God's word. So again, this whole book is looking to answer the question that's found in verse 3. What is the point of all this? The author identifies himself here in verse 12 as either Solomon himself or Solomon-esque, trying to bring to your mind Solomon so you think of him. And the, the best way to translate this is kind of, we could, instead of preacher, we could almost say philosopher. And so we're going to kind of go with the idea of a philosopher-pastor for the rest of this book. He, he gives his qualifications as this philosopher-pastor to try to answer that question of what is the point of living in a cursed world. And so today in this passage, he's going to look at two answers. And before we get to that, again, I want to do something a little different. We usually don't do this, but again, Ecclesiastes is so, so from such a different culture, and it's asking such poignant questions. I want to make sure we get this. And so we're going to look together at the kids' translation in toto. So boys and girls, get yours out. For the rest of you, it'll be on the screen for you. Here's how we did it for the kids this week. <clears throat> Ready? Good. Okay. I, the pastor and thinker, have been king over God's people, sitting on my throne in Jerusalem. I spent my life learning all about this world. I see that God has given us a difficult life in this busy world. I've seen it all in this empty life, and I know that finding answers is like trying to catch the wind in your hands. Life is so messed up. After I learned a lot in school, more than any other king in Jerusalem, and after I got to use my knowledge, I still found no answers. So, I decided to learn about right and wrong to find answers. But that did as much good as trying to catch the wind in my hands. The more I learn about life in this world, the madder I get. The longer I live, the more pain I see. Can you feel it in this text? See how the, the emotional turmoil that's there in this text? That's what I really want us to get into that. So today, here's where we're going today. You might want to write this down. You can remember this for your family devotions. You're thinking about the sermon afterwards at lunch. Here's where we're going. A frustrating life drives us to seek answers. But this world only gives more frustration. We all ask, why are we here? What's the point of everything? And the culture tries to give us an answer. 
religion tries to give us an answer, but the only real answer is from God. And so we're going to walk through those three different answers today. So first, the cultural answer, the first couple of verses here, verse 13 through 15. Look in your bulletin or look in your Bible with me. And let's look at verse 13 together. Verse 13, he says that he applied his heart, that he gave his life, in other words. He said he did this to what? To seek and to search out. So diligently, no half measures. He's going to find the answers. And how is he going to do it? He says, by wisdom. And wisdom is defined by the next phrase, all that has been done under heaven. All right, so let's put all that together. What's he saying? He's saying he gave his life to learn all about the world. In other words, he tried our culture's answer to life's problems and frustrations. Education. The answer to everything you need. The assumption is that humanity's main problem is ignorance. If, if only we can get people to have knowledge, it, then we can solve all the problems of life under the sun. That is our culture. In October 2012, right before the presidential election, Time magazine ran the cover article. It says, Why Education is the Answer. And it invited President Obama and Mitt Romney to each submit an essay answering that question. See, note the assumption. Don't prove the question. No, no, no. We all know the question's true. You tell us how you're going to do it. Because education is the answer. Today, it's very trendy to talk about income inequality. Forbes magazine just ran a two-part series back in February about how education is the answer to income inequality. And you've got to love the irony of Forbes magazine talking about income inequality. Anyway, so, or how about this one from Richard Dawkins, the great friend of Christianity, not very militant atheist. He said just this about a month ago in Dublin, Ireland. He said children do need to be protected so that they can have a proper education and not to be indoctrinated in whatever religion their parents happen to have been brought up in. Education's the answer. You've got to make sure they get a right one. Because education's more than 2 plus 2 equals 4, isn't it? We all know that. It's about learning to look at life. What, when, when we're confronted with life's ultimate questions, what are those bedrock foundational principles we look to, that we fall back on? They are the bedrock foundational principles we have been taught education that's the issue today that divides people in this room into homeschoolers and private schoolers and public schoolers those three answers offer three different foundational principles but it doesn't matter how good your foundational principles are ecclesiastes tells us ultimately information in our brain cannot satisfy the quest for significance god has put in our heart Many have tried it with education, but it doesn't work. Now be careful. This is not just the culture out there that does this. We, we do this in the church. We think, man, I've got to get my kids to Sunday school so they can learn about the Bible. I've got to make sure they sit through the service and at least try to pay attention to Pastor Sean. Then they'll grow up and be godly teenagers. I mean, he always talks about, you know, family devotion stuff. I don't really need to worry about praying with them at home. And I had that whole family devotion thing, I don't, I don't get into that. And yeah, living a godly life before them, that's a little hard. But I just need to get them to the children's ministry and Mary Beth will make them godly through Sunday school. 
Now, boys and girls, clarify real quick here. We love having y'all in Sunday school. All right? It's important, boys and girls, to come learn about God's Word in Sunday school. It's important that you learn about salvation through Jesus Christ. And mom and dad want you to be in Sunday school too, okay? But I'm going to tell you a secret. You, boys and girls, you want to know a secret? You can help out Miss Mary Beth. You can help out the elders. And you can help out your parents. Mom and dad are busy. And we forget. Sometimes we just forget to ask you about Sunday school. Sometimes we just forget to have a brief family prayer after dinner. Sometimes we forget just to sit down and read a small portion of the Bible. We want to. We've thought about doing it. We just forget. Pastor Sean is one of the two professional Christians in the room, boys and girls. And I forget. Imagine what your amateur parents do. So could you help out mom and dad by asking them to pray with you? Could you help out mom and dad, boys and girls, by asking them to read the Bible with you? Could you help out mom and dad by asking them, hey, will you want to talk about Sunday school? They would love to do that. They just forget. So why don't you try it this afternoon? Ask them, hey, you want to talk about Sunday school? See what happens. Anyway, back to the text. So at the end of his quest to to find an answer in education... Note verse 14, he claims to have learned it all. What is his diagnosis? Let's look together at the end of verse 13. Here's what he says. He says, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Or an alternate translation could be, it is a tragic affliction God has afflicted on the sons of Adam. See, he sees the frustration and restlessness of life as an educated man. He's learned it all. He's seen it all. And he traces it all to the will of God. Did you notice that? He says, God has given this to us. God has done this to us. Remember that phrase, under the sun. That's life east of Eden. That's life in a world that was paradise and now paradise has been lost. That God has not stopped the unhappy business that happens in a cursed world. And it's not just that it's unhappy. That word is actually the word in Hebrew for bad, for evil. It's one of the strongest words out there. See, this cursed world, evil is rampant. It's an evil business we have to deal with. Not just unhappy, it's bad. And the fact that our heart is a glory-craving thing that just sucks glory out of anything makes it even harder on us because we go to these evil things in life and we want to matter we want to be significant so we try to grab happiness and significance from all these things he says it is a evil bad business you're dealing with you're not going to be satisfied and the result of that is he what he tells us there in the second part of verse 14 it's all vanity and striving after wind Or like we said for the boys and girls translation, like trying to grab the wind in your hand. Or what you and I might say in a casual conversation, it's like herding cats. That's how crazy it is. Trying to find answers in this cursed, evil world through education is as difficult as trying to herd cats. Good luck with that. The philosopher preacher of Ecclesiastes is so frustrated here at the end of his search, he starts talking in poetry. Look with me at verse 15. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. 
I love the, uh, the English version translation of this. It says, you can't straighten out what is crooked, and you can't count things that aren't there. Or how we did it for the, the kids. Life is so messed up. That's where he, he lands after he, he tries our culture's answer. Education, more education, more school, it doesn't work. The question of what's the point of everything can't be answered by collecting another degree. But the culture outside the church is not the only place we look, is it? There's a culture inside the church, too, that tries to answer this question as well. And so next he looks at the religious answer in verses 16 through 18. So starting out in verse 16, he, he moves past head knowledge, what he's accumulated from school, what he's accumulated from books, and he, he moves to what he's actually done or experienced in life. And the rest of the chapter and most of chapter 2, he's going to tell us the various answers he's tried to, through experience. He's directly dabbled in to try to find answers. The first one he's tried is right here in verse 17. Earlier he told us that he applied his heart to seek and to search out by wisdom. But now he's changed it. Look at verse 17. He says, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness, to know folly. See, he's applying his heart to experience these things now. He wants to know wisdom. He wants to know madness. He wants to know folly. He wants to experience that distinction between those things. Now, these are, these are terms from an ancient Near Eastern culture. Okay? He is not saying that he is going to go to the insane asylum and see how they're doing. It's not what he means by madness and folly. What he's doing is he's setting up in his culture wisdom and knowledge to them was the idea of generally doing what is right. Madness and folly in that culture and in Scripture specifically is living your life not doing what is right, or specifically just disregarding God and His commands and His guidance. So you've got doing what is right or completely disregarding God's commands. So doing the right thing versus doing the wrong thing. And as we're going to see in chapter 2, he, he tries it, man. He's, he's going to pursue pleasure. He's going to pursue immorality. He's going to pursue materialism. He's going to pursue all the things under the sun that offer an, an answer to the big questions. Verse 17 is a summary getting us ready for verse 2. So right here what he's saying is, look, I'm going to go out and I'm going to experience right and wrong. In other words, his answer is personal, individual morality. Which is what most people look to the church to provide, isn't it? In other words, this is the religious answer. I was a uh, youth director during college at a little town in Axel, Texas, and then during seminary, I was a youth director in Madison, Mississippi. And then, you know, as I went to the non-denominational world, as I got back into the PCA, I decided that, well, maybe I'm not quite ready to be a solo pastor in the PCA so I'll, or a senior pastor for sure, so I'll try to be a youth pastor somewhere. So I applied at various places and made it through several interviews. And I remember this one interview I got. I was talking about my philosophy of ministry, about a Christ-centered, gospel-centered ministry where we, where we teach them to love Jesus. And because they love Jesus, they'll want to be in His Word. Because they want to be in His Word, it'll change you know, who they are. And I was interrupted by the chief of the, of the committee. He, goes, he, he, he literally said something to the, to the effect of, okay, yeah, that's good. We've all heard that before. How are you going to stop our kids from having sex and drinking? Because that's what matters. Yeah, Jesus schmeezes. I don't want them to get drunk and have babies. What are you going to do about it? I withdrew my name from consideration, by the way, because I was like, sorry, um, the only person who could do that died on a cross about 2,000 years ago. But that's what mattered. 
the church office today, we get all sorts of children's curriculum samples. Children's Sunday school curriculum is a big business, and so much of it has nothing to do with getting to know Jesus Christ. It's all, or the gospel. It's all about behavior modification. How not to be a liar, how not to steal, or how God loves it when you're a good little boy or girl. You know, one of the things, by the way, when I got here four years ago now as a new pastor was that I didn't have to wade into that, which is usually one of the first battles a new pastor has to do is get rid of the moralism Sunday school and get it about Christ. Mary Beth had already done a fantastic job of taking care of that. Such a blessing. But hear me, because right now some of you are like, well, hold on, what was he saying? We want our kids to know right and wrong. Your session wants you to know right and wrong. But moral transformation is a result of the work of the gospel. Knowing Jesus Christ through salvation comes first, and that changes you. We don't change to be good people and then come to Christ. Moral transformation is not the same as the work of Jesus Christ. There are good, moral, upstanding people burning in hell right now because their sins were never forgiven by Jesus Christ because they never placed their faith and trust in Him because they're a good person and didn't see the need to. When we think Christianity is about making people behave, that's moralism. That's not the gospel. And as the rest of verse 17 tells us, looking to moralism for answers is just as good as trying to grasp the wind. Or as we said earlier, using moralism to answer the big questions of life makes as much sense as trying to herd cats. Now again, some of you probably are confused right now with this whole moralism thing. Moralism tries to reduce the gospel to improvements in behavior. Whenever a non-Christian hears the message that they need to get their life cleaned up and straight to be a good Christian, that's moralism. Or in the South, what do we call it? We call it being raised right. You know, a child who pleases their parents, respects other adults, observes social rules, all good things. Then they become an adult who obeys the law, is a good neighbor, gives lip service to religion. They, you know, they go on the important days. And, they don't, and, they, and mainly they don't cuss or drink in public. See, moralism assumes righteousness comes by behavior. What we do earns God's grace and peace. And that's the problem with moralism. It points away from Christ as the answer to our behavior as the answer. Moralism puts a burden of behavior on us that we cannot handle. And it makes people resent Christians. It makes people resent the church. And it makes people not be open to hearing about the gospel. Because people who've been exposed to moralism hate it and think it's Christianity. And like, no thank you. There's no hope in that. There's no, nothing attractive in saying, be a good person and God will love you. Clean up your life so you can come to Jesus. See, there's no hope in the religious answer of knowing right and wrong. He tried it. He dove into it. He was going to be a good person. And he sums up his quest, how it worked out for him in verse 18. He says, in much wisdom is much vexation. That's the word for anger, for grief, for indignation. He says, he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Again, that's anguish. That's pain. 
See, he comes to understand what many after him have, un- have understood. The more you experience in life, the more you gain knowledge of right and wrong, the more you see the grief, pain, and despair in life under the sun, the more miserable you are. It doesn't work. Make sure we're on the same page still. Make sure, make sure you get this. So I'm going to talk to the boys and girls, and then you adults, you can listen in just this once. Boys and girls, Pastor Sean wants to talk to you. You looking at Pastor Sean? Okay. Are there things that mom and dad talk about that you overhear sometimes, and you want to know more about it, but, but they won't tell you? You know why they won't tell you? Because there are some things that once you know them, you can't unknow them, and you'll become sad. And you'll really wish you didn't know. Trust me, mom and dad wish they could go back to being children and not know a lot of things they know now. Because they have less worry and less stress and less fear. Mom and dad want to protect you from that as long as they can. And that's what's going on in this text, boys and girls. This pastor philosopher, he figured that out. So look with me, boys and girls, at your verse 18. Here's what he says. The more I learned about life in this world, the madder I get. It should be matter with two D's. Sorry about that. The longer I live, the more pain I see. See, this is the reason moralism is so powerless. Because most people recognize right and wrong in the world. Most people recognize what should be done. And most people recognize that the right thing never seems to get done. Knowing right and wrong doesn't help. It still leaves you with questions. There must be something bigger than our will, bigger than our strength as the source of right versus wrong, or we have no hope and no answers. So, dear church, instead of offering people moralism, we need to offer them the gospel. That is why this despair he ends in verse 18 Sounds like such a downer, but actually it's a great opportunity for evangelism. It really is. I'm going to say something, but I've got to preface this first. Okay? I have been a trainer in evangelism explosion. I, I have done evangelism explosion. I have been on so many EE presentations. So I get to say this with some experience, what I'm about to say. Okay? Evangelism today needs to be rooted in the despair of verse 18. Instead of the, you know how it goes if you've done EE, instead of the perfunctory questions and then the pro- polite version of, could you shut up now and let me give you my canned presentation I memorized. Okay, instead of that, Ecclesiastes shows us that it's a good idea to let the other person talk. Ask them for their answers to life's frustrations. How do they answer the question of what's the point of all this? What does it really matter? See, people who are ready for the gospel have been thinking about that. Here's how someone way smarter and godlier than I, Francis Schaeffer, here's how he said it. He said, all men have a deep longing for significance, a longing for meaning. No man, regardless of his theoretical system, is content to look at himself as a finally meaningless machine which can and will be discarded totally and forever. People want to know what's the point. There's got to be something bigger than this. So don't be afraid as you're talking with people about the gospel. Don't be afraid to let them explore with you life under the sun. 
Because when they realize it's striving after wind, they might be ready to listen to the gospel answer. Because until they get to the point of verse 18, like, I don't know, it just seems like life is pain and anybody else is trying to sell you something. Until they get to that point, they're not really ready to hear an answer. And so often we're, we're afraid that we can't let people get there. We've got we've to use our salesmanship skills, right? In salesmanship, you keep things positive and happy. And look how shiny Jesus is. Don't you want this shiny product? I mean, Jesus, right? Let's not do that. Let's like, how's life working for you? Are you really happy? What do you think the point of all this is? I mean, let's say you accumulate wealth. Let's say you live your life at the end of 80, 90 years. Okay, now what? What's, what was the point of all that, really? And if they're honest with you, they'll, I don't really have a good answer. They'll, they'll try to come up with something, but really you have an answer. You can then talk to them. See, verse 18 sounds hopeless because the writer wants us hopeless. He's showing the world from an earthly perspective without God. He's saying, study all the philosophers, research all the religions, take all the personal improvement classes you want, and at the end you'll still find frustration and vexation because neither culture nor religion has the answer. But there is another place to look. And so we're going to finish with God's answer. The answer of education was meaningless. He pursued morality and found it lacking. So now we ask, what is God's answer? And it's redemption through Jesus Christ. And it's in this text. Remember at the end of his answer about education, he's so frustrated. Remember, he learned everything there was and there were no ultimate answers. And so he says that poem in verse 15. Remember, let's look at it again. He says what? What is crooked cannot be made straight. See, the cursed world, this world under the sun is too messed up. We can't fix it. We need help outside of this world to come and fix it. And God has provided that through Jesus Christ. In fact, the New Testament claims specifically that Jesus Christ is the fix for verse 15. As a preparation, if you remember the narrative of the Christmas story, as a preparation for Jesus' earthly ministry, God anointed a man named John the Baptist to go and do a ministry of repentance and preparation for Christ. He, he would go out and he would preach and he would tell people Jesus is coming. And in describing his ministry, Luke tells us something interesting in Luke 3, 5. He tells us this about this coming one. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. See, technically he's quoting from Isaiah. But check this out. That ain't in Isaiah. He, Luke grabs this verse from Ecclesiastes 1, 15 pastes it on his little Mac, you know, right-click, paste into Isaiah, and then puts it in his letter to Theophilus. He says, guess what? Jesus Christ has come with the power to straighten out this crooked world. This world is frustrating. Trying to find answers here is like herding cats because this world is cursed and it's fallen and it's in need of redemption. And Jesus Christ has come to overcome that curse to fix what is broken, to redeem all of creation. So the answer to what is the point is to look to Jesus Christ and see what he's done for you on the cross. So the author of Ecclesiastes, probably Solomon, you know, great David's son Solomon, the wisest man on earth who God gifted with wisdom, he couldn't find all the answers to life's frustrations, to the meaninglessness of life. But Jesus Christ wasn't just a glorious king in Jerusalem. He left the glories of heaven 
to become one of us. He's great David's even greater son, the greater Solomon, who was wisdom incarnate. And he comes to be the answer and give the answer. See, the New Testament picks up on this theme from Ecclesiastes. In the Roman world of the early church, the Gentiles in that Roman world, they looked to knowledge. They looked to education to answer the big questions of life. The Jews dispersed all about the Roman Empire. They looked to morality and ethics to answer life's big questions. And so the Apostle Paul, the expert in what the Jews were doing, and the called Apostle to the Gentiles grabs both those ideas to a struggling church in Corinth, and he helps them to understand the gospel in that context. So we'll close with this. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 20-24. Here's what Paul says. He says, Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Can you see Paul, the expert on the Old Testament? Do you see those concepts from Ecclesiastes 1? He quotes right here. They're right there. He says, look, man, Christ is foolishness to the world under the sun. Scripture says the answer to our thirst for significance, our hunger for glory in a world of mist and vapor, what makes us question existence under the sun, why we find it frustrating is because we need an answer that's not under the sun. And that answer is in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings meaning and significance to those who are looking for truth through education and those who are looking for truth through through ethics and morality. He comes and he brings meaning by being truthful and loving. He comes truthfully and says, you are so sinful. You are so broken. You are so messed up. You are so repugnant to your holy creator God that I've got to die to fix this gap. There's no other answer under the sun but my death for your sin. But you are so loved and so valued and so treasured that I have voluntarily, gladly come to be that sacrifice for you. And that gives you the significance that one so holy would do that for you. There's your significance. There's your what's the point. So in your pain, in your struggles, in your heartaches, take those things to God and say, I don't understand Why is life so frustrating? And then let him take you to see Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, dying for you. See him raised on the third day, destroying death, breaking the power of life under the sun and bringing in new life in Christ. Confess that Jesus Christ is the answer. Ask him to help you understand life, and he will do that. He will give you roots. He will ground you in his love. And you may not understand everything that happens, but you will have resources in the gospel to give you peace in this life. You will have the promise of ultimate answers in the life to come. That's the gospel. That's Christianity. Do you have that in this life? Let's pray together.